morning, Illuminate. So two things real quick. It's 70 degrees outside. Hold on. Life in the Valley gets, gets even better. And the D-backs are in the World Series. I'm not Catholic, but I'll do the sign of the cross and see what happens. You got your Bibles, we're in Romans chapter six. We're gonna cover the last half. It is, once again, a super rich text. So good. It talks about what has enslaved you and what you have been set free from. So in Romans chapter five, Paul introduces this uniquely distinctive Christian virtue known as grace. Fact check me on it. All other worldviews, religions, this is the missing piece. What is grace? Simply put, God's unmerited favor, you don't deserve it, you cannot earn it, comes to you freely. In Romans chapter five, verse 20, Paul says, where sin increases, well, there has to be an abundance of grace to cover that sin. We talked about how Paul is a brilliant thinker. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he raises an imaginary objector as he often does in his writing, because he wants to convince you, he wants to persuade you. So it's one thing to know what you believe, it's another thing to think ahead what those who might oppose you be thinking, and so that's what he does. And so the objector raises this question, hmm, okay. Where sin increases, grace has to increase to cover that sin. So why not sin more in order for God to supply more grace if grace makes God look better then aren't we doing God a favor by sinning? and sinning well and sinning often? Paul makes a resounding no. You don't understand grace. A proper understanding of grace should lead you away from sin, not towards it. Perhaps you've heard a pastor or a spiritual leader, after some kind of moral failure, they say something like this. I'm a child of God, I live in the grace of God, and I am forgiven by God. And now all of that is true, but there's something missing. There's something else that should be included, and that is an admission of sin's consequence. <laughs> it's not just enough to say that part. In my opinion, you must add the other part that, sa that says, what I did had a profound effect on me, my personhood, and those around me. There's this sobering reality that, in a very real sense, sin is slavery. And that's the conversation Paul, he, he sets everybody up for in the very first sentence of the letter. Romans chapter one, verse one, if we were to say, Paul, tell us about yourself. Just like we might say, introduce yourself. Well, you're probably gonna give your name and probably your occupation, something you do, something like that. And so here's what, here's what Paul says about himself. Very, very first opening line of the letter, he says this. Paul, here's what I want you to know about me. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a, an apostle. Think of an apostle as a messenger. Uh, set apart for one specific reason, and that is for the gospel of God. That word gospel was not a new concept. Christians didn't invent it. In Paul's day, that word was very often applied to Caesar. 
Because whenever Caesar was about to make some public announcement and he had good news for the people, it was literally called the gospel of Caesar. Hey, listen, everybody. Caesar is about to proclaim gospel to you, good news, whatever that good news might be. So what was happening is early Christians hijacked that word. So you wanna know the real good news? Don't listen to Caesar. Pay attention to what God has for you. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm a servant. That Greek word for servant is an interesting one. It's the word doulos. And it literally describes someone who serves another for their entire lives. For their entire lives, Paul says, I serve Jesus. And uh, this idea of serving somebody is central to Paul's theme in chapter six. Because the reality is we all serve somebody. That is to say, you have a master, whether you know it or not. And you may be here this morning and you say, I don't think so, Jason. Uh, I don't serve anybody but myself. That's the point. We all serve somebody. So it's this idea of slavery that Paul turns to, and he's gonna use this metaphor in a very powerful way. There's a physical form of slavery, but there's also a spiritual form of slavery. Now, in Paul's day, in the city of Rome, it's estimated that nearly one-third of the population consisted of slaves. In fact, at one point, the Roman Senate was going to pass a resolution, a law requiring all slaves to wear a specific kind of clothing, but then they realized, we better not do that because then the populace will find out how many of them are slaves and they could rise up, they could have some kind of uprising and be able to identify each other easily. So they got rid of that, that, that law. If you add those who were former slaves, roughly 50% of those surrounding your community in Rome would be slaves. And here's what's interesting. The church was made up of both slave and free. Oh, and back in the day, uh, it was different races, different classes, different socio. You could be a rich person and, and suddenly find yourself enslaved to somebody else. You could be a Roman citizen and be enslaved to another person. So Paul lists this out of his culture. And he says, let me talk to you about, about another form of slavery. Because if slavery is defined as obedience to another, all of humanity serves someone, whether they know it or not. Uh, Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. I think to a greater or lesser degree, we all are. Those who suffer from addiction are slaves to whatever particular substance of their choosing. Perfectionists are enslaved to what is precise. The trouble with being a perfectionist is nobody's ever perfect, so you're always dissatisfied. Workaholics are enslaved to the feeling of achieving something. That's that's how I get my worth. I achieve things. Those who overeat are enslaved to the food. Those who view pornography, seductive images, are enslaved to all kinds of things. There's a fascinating book 
that will help you understand what you're really searching for in life, what that real emptiness is that you're trying to fill based on the kind of pornography that you view. To some degree, at times, we all find ourselves serving a master that doesn't serve us well. And the simple point is this. Enslave yourself to the wrong thing and you will become completely and totally undone. Choose your master carefully. Not just physical, but spiritual enslavement as well. Paul says in the next verse, verse 16, do you not know that those, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he categorizes all of humanity into one of two groups. You're either serving God, which leads to righteousness, or you're serving your sin, which leads you to death. Uh, and and uh, what kind of death are we talking about? Well, there's a physical and a spiritual death. He'll flesh that, this out in a few verses. But let me, let me just describe uh, how deceitful a master sin is. It will make you think you are free when, in fact, you are a puppet. <laughs> you are an absolute puppet on a string. You know the story of Pinocchio? I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, but in a different context. I'll bring it back to him. Pinocchio, a wooden boy, wooden puppet made by Geppetto. And he has this, this inner longing to be a real boy, to be a real boy. And one day his dream is granted and he thinks he's free to live life as a boy. And then he encounters the wily fox who's known as Honest John. And Honest John makes a promise to Pinocchio. He says, Pinocchio, I'm gonna make you a star. You will be a real living puppet, but without strings. And no one will be controlling you. And so what happens? Pinocchio says, yeah, I want that. And as he begins to pursue this life of freedom, what happens? He becomes enslaved to the wily fox. His friend comes along and sets him free. But then quickly... He's lured to this really special place called what? Pleasure Island. And now he's at Pleasure Island and there are all these things surrounding him, all of these things that he's always wanted. And he's told, whatever you wanna do, pursue it. This is your path to liberty. It's all there for you, indulge. And so he does. And then in a scene, that is incredibly profound. It is a children's story, but it is incredibly profound. He begins to realize that the things he's pursuing, the things that he thought would bring him life and happiness and joy have entangled him, and they have begun to transform him into something he doesn't want to be. And the scene is really creepy because it's all done with animals. And this little boy starts running away, trying to separate himself from all of these pleasures, but it's too late. 
he sprouts a tail, a donkey's head, and this boy is transformed into an animal. And he's horrified. And he can't escape it. That children's story tells us be very careful of the things you pursue which leads you to believe they will bring you life, liberty, and freedom. When in fact, they lead to death. When in fact, as you pursue them, you become almost inhuman. Have you ever thought to yourself, I never thought I would do this. I never thought I would be this. I thought it was going to bring me life. And now I'm dying. That's the story. That's the theme. And I have counseled men and women. And when I counsel them best, I reflect on my own enslavement. Men and women who will boast about living with no restraint, no strings, no masters, when in fact, they're the most bound up. Elizabeth Elliot tells the story about visiting Scotland. And she made this wonderful observation. She observes a shepherd with his sheepdog out in the field on the hillside. And with just these simple commands, the dog does exactly what it's been trained to do. And so these sheep are scattered far and wide all across the side of this hill. And what's one shepherd gonna do to try to corral them all and get them where he needs to be? He needs just one well-trained, obedient dog. And with one command, the sheep move in this direction because the dog pushes. Another command, the dog circles around, brings the sheep back. Just one dog with one command. And she said it was beautiful to watch these two creatures who were so disciplined and so in sync with each other, it was, it was as if they were in the, all their glory together. And then she describes the sheepdog as having the time of its life, never wanting to do anything different than what the owner would tell it to do. And its tail is wagging and is bouncing around and I have had a similar experience in my own way. A friend of mine, he invited me to his hunt club. I didn't even know these things existed. So we're at this hunt club and he has a guide. And the guide came to us and said, hey, do you mind if I work all my dogs? And I said, I don't mind. It'd be kind of fun. So he rolls up in the back of his truck. Six dogs are in the back of his truck. I said, are you gonna work all these dogs at once? He said, yeah. And then he went on to explain the fact that his wife had been sick, he'd been taking care of her, and he hadn't had the chance to be with the dogs, and it's important that you stay with them and keep them sharp, and it had been a while, and can I work them all? I said, that, that would be amazing, I'd love to see that. And so if you've ever been bird hunting with dogs that are well-trained, it is an incredible thing. Heal, dogs are right next to him. Release, they flush the field and they're sniffing, and they're running around. Tails are bobbed, because you don't want the tails messing with the grass. The 
scare out the birds unnecessarily, and then boom, one dog would sniff a bird and go on point. And then the other dogs would line up one after another right behind it. It was absolutely incredible. And there, all these dogs are on point together, noses sticking straight toward where the smell of the bird is. Go. Flush them out. They retrieve the bird, and a dog's natural instinct is to bite and chew and eat that thing. But the dogs have been trained to have soft mouths and bring them back. Drop them at your feet. These dogs were doing what they were designed to do because in their training, they had learned that their obedience led to their happiness. Let me say that again. It's an important point. These dogs were living the life they were intended to lead as hunting dogs because in their training, they learned that their obedience led to their joy, their pleasure. Do you understand what Paul is saying here? He's about to tell you that the path to a joyful existence comes in a very specific way. Who do you obey? (laughs) Who do you obey? That's the key to your joy in life. That's true liberty. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Jesus put it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart, which is a way of saying sincerely, Here's the question. What exactly are we to be obedient to that gives us life? He's gonna tell you. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of a different kind of righteousness. Notice Paul identifies exactly where we get our commands. What's he say? To the standard of teaching. I, I think this is a reference to, back in the day, they didn't have the Bible that you have. The Bible that of Jesus' day would have been is the Old Testament, Uh, but they didn't have the New Testament yet. But what they did have was the teachings of Jesus that would have been circulated in the churches. And so I think that's what Paul is referring to here. He says, you have the teachings of Jesus. You be obedient to them. And when you're obedient to them, they will lead you toward righteousness. The big word, but in this context, think of righteousness as doing right deeds, living a right life. And then you will experience true liberation. It's really interesting because the Greek word for standard, when he says standard of teaching, In the reader's mind in the first century AD, they literally, they would have pictured a mold. You pour a casting into a mold and when it firms up, you pull away the mold and you have that casting and that casting takes on the representation of what it was poured into. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, the scriptures, that's the mold. Pour yourself into them. And when you do, you will experience righteousness through your obedience. And that's where your true liberation and joy comes from. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, what he's saying is these are spiritual concepts and I'm doing the best I can to try to bring them to you in a way that you understand. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity 
and to lawlessness, which leads to more lawlessness. You know, you know that, that's how it works. Sin is never static. It's always dynamic. Again, you find yourself saying, this is the line. This much and no more. And the temptation is, this is getting old and familiar. I need something new and different and exciting. I'll just take one step further. And then that becomes old and boring. And then it's another step. That's why he says, lawlessness leads to lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. A radical call for commitment and a reversal of, of teams, you might say. So your lifestyle now accommodates your new service. Now, it also means you, don't, you, you are set free from the former life that you had. Notice what he says. He says, you once presented your members as slaves. The word for members literally means bodies. No one knew this better than Paul because previously he sought to kill Christians and then he becomes one. So this guy was a really, this was a bad guy. And yet he says, I'm free from that. I love when Paul says, he mentions this list of vices and you read it and you're like, oh, that's me, that's me. Oh, that isn't me, but this one is. And he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were set free. And uh, it's kind of like when you first come to Christ, you have all of this baggage, you have all of this garbage in your life, and you dump it. You get rid of it. But then you realize, there's still a few flies buzzing around. Not as many as there were before, but there's still a few buzzing around, and therein lies some of those old temptations, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, there's no third rail, third option, there's no middle ground, there's no gray area. Then he gives you the benefits of this new life, verse 21. But what fruit, this is a great question to ask yourself, man, so simple, so good. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You've ever met somebody who says, no regrets. I have no regrets in this life. You ever met somebody like that? I used to say that when I was immature. Now I realize someone who tells you they have no regrets, that's just rude and lacks a ton of self-awareness. I have a lot of regrets. I regret the pain that I have caused to the people that I love. I deeply regret that. I regret the times in my past when I've used people. I regret that. You know, when Paul says that, that those things lead to death, what's he talking about? It's been the death of close relationships. That's on me. Yeah, there's a lot of things I regret. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, is that but now statement, I love those, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. You're gonna serve somebody, right? The fruit you get leads to sanctification, being more like Jesus. And its end, eternal life. So again, he's saying obedience to God is the key to our, our liberation. Here's the summary statement, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus 
our Lord. This is an important verse. What does it mean? Well, you know, you understand what wages are. You work and then you receive something that's you. This, the word back in the day in this context was very, very commonly used to describe the rations that were given to soldiers after they served. Notice the opposite. Wage is what you earn. But notice the opposite. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a free gift. Notice, eternal life is not a wage. You must catch that. See, this is important. It's one verse. Sin has a wage. You've earned it. Eternal life, though, is a free gift. You cannot earn it. You can't earn it through your religiosity, uh, uh, through, through your, your works. Uh, so I have a really sweet dog. She's very, very old. As best as I can tell, she's anywhere between 12 and 14 years old. She's almost totally covered in gray. She's got one eye. She's blind in, in the other. Eye. She's got one good eye, and it's fading. She has cauliflowered ears, kind of like a UFC fighter. It's kind of rugged looking. I wanted to name her Rhonda after Rhonda Rousey. My wife didn't go for that. But the reason why her ears are cauliflowered because when she was little, she was neglected, and she had such a bad ear infection that it actually scarred her ears. She's deaf, blind in one eye. She has palsy, so her face is crooked. She's missing about half of her teeth because they were rotten. They had to be pulled. So when she smiles, it's, you know, this thing's funky looking. But great personality. Great personality. Super sweet. Part beagle, part boxer. Now, when I take her for a walk, I get kind of jealous of other dog owners. Because there's a bunch of dogs in my neighborhood that are super well-trained and super well My dog would flunk obedience school. So I pass by these, these other, my neighbors, and they're, they're walking their dog, and I notice that a lot of them walk their dog without a leash. And the dog's running around, sniffing things, and, you know, doing its bit, and then, and then not, not, not too long, though, not too long, because then the dog runs back up to the owner, and what's it do? <laughs> like, are we good? Are we good? Okay, bye. You know, runs around, sniffing stuff, and runs back to its owner, and looks up, and very well behaved. The dog has tremendous freedom to go where it wants because it listens to and trusts, has been well instructed, obeys the commands of its owner. My dog, not so much. <laughs> My dog with that beagle is nose to the ground, sniffing on something. She will sniff her way right out into traffic. <laughs> totally clueless. Therefore, she has about four feet of freedom. See what I'm saying? And that's it. I don't get a lot of joy from that. She'll be straining at the leash, like, you know, like wanting to go and be with the other dogs. I'm like, if I let you go, you're gone. You're gone. You won't be able to see or hear what's coming, you know. You're gone. So you gotta stay close. I gotta keep you close. Come back, come back, come back. It's the constant contact that those dogs have in obedience to their masters that release it to experience joy. Paradoxical, isn't it? Because you don't want to be on any kind of leash. You, 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 people think that the Bible's instruction, that the instructions from Jesus are restrictive and burdensome. Please. 
Let me put a modern, modern day paraphrase on it. Consider your time at the dog park while on the leash. What fruit is being produced in your life? I'll tell you what kind. Wax. <laughs> it looks great. Beautiful in the moment. Take a bite. No nutrients. It's not feeding you. But that's how deceitful sin is and it leads to death. That's the story of Pinocchio. So uh, what are the areas of your life that God might be speaking to even now? Um, what kind of fruit is being produced? Consider what you are getting at that time or even now from the things of which you were ashamed. And we are led to believe that those things are nutritious. But over time, wax cannot be digested. It does begin to melt. Who do you serve? Who are you being obedient to? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes because I would hate for this opportunity to pass by you and not allow the spirit of God to work in, a, in, a, in an introspective way. We're about to do what Jesus commanded us to do for the last 2,000 years. He said, remember me, specifically remember my death, my burial and resurrection. That is how grace is supplied. That's how eternal life is supplied. So, as Paul says, why would you want to take advantage of that? While it comes to you freely, it costs the gift to giver quite a bit. If you see the preciousness of your salvation by grace, you're going to treat it as precious. So the Apostle Paul encourages Christians, and this is something that Christians are commanded to do for the last 2,000 years, to do this in a way that is worthy well, I think in part, doing it in a worthy manner means, number one, you're thankful, you're appreciative, but then it manifests itself through obedience. And that obedience is freedom. There is freedom in that. So Father, these truths are, they just, they don't come from the mind of man. Clearly they are supernatural, but we know they are right, they are good, they are true. Father, lead us in this time. Pray that your spirit would speak to us. And we're grateful for what Jesus has done, securing our salvation. And for it to be a, a benefit to us that even through his own obedience now to know He's exalted and glorified and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Guide us in this time, we pray in Christ's name, amen.